1: Ciao, The one thing we know for sure is that a new manager needs time to implement his strategies and ideas, and judging from Mikel Arteta's first game, about four days should do it. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I hope you had a very Merry Christmas, are enjoying a very Happy Hanukkah, and uh, whatever you are celebrating or not celebrating, you're just doing great wherever you are. Um, we are going to talk about Arsenal 1, Bournemouth 1, and the dawn of the Mikel Arteta era, and I think... A mostly buoyant attitude following that game. So we'll be, uh, we'll be breaking down sort of tactically, statistically, and, and, uh, just generally overreacting to the, the match itself. But before we do that, a couple of things. Because, uh, of the holidays and me just basically being derelict in my duties, we haven't shut down the competition yet. I am going to do that pretty much right after the podcast, uh, or thereabouts. So if you still want to win the, um, The shirt, the year of The Athletic, or the year of Patreon, there's probably going to be a couple hours after this comes out where you can still enter. Otherwise, on the next pod, we will announce winners for all of that. And uh, we are getting in final numbers. It looks like it's going to be Clive in a landslide um, in terms of singing the holiday song, which will probably be more like a New Year's song, but that's okay. It's still going to be very entertaining, and I'm, I'm sure Clive is looking forward to it. But we'll get the final numbers and make sure. Got to count every vote. Don't want any hanging chads or anything like that for you 2,000 U.S. election uh, aficionados out there so we're back to saying if you want uh half off the athletic in a month free it's the athletic.com forward slash arsenal vision and uh that's really what we're back to on that front anyway uh over on patreon there's my instant reaction pod and uh clive's transfer pod start next week scott's analytics pod start next week so lots of good things there that'll do it for the housekeeping paul's on twitter at in my pants hello pause Woo-hoo. clive's on twitter at clive bfc hello clive hey, Luna. and tim's on twitter at stoberto hello tim Hello there. Got to give a plug to you, Tim. You recorded a banter of the decade podcast with uh, blogs, with Arse blog for uh, his Patreon. And I had that queued up and have been like making it through that like two minutes at a time because of the busyness with the baby and stuff. But that is a fantastic idea. And I'm really sort of sad that it wasn't ours. But h- how fun was that to record? <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, it was it was Um, it was good fun to record uh, some, you know, some good banter and bad banter (laughs) in there so there is stuff like the 2011 league cup final um there's stuff like going 4-0 up at Newcastle and still not winning but then there's some good stuff like um you know going 2-0 down in the cup final to hold but winning and the signing of Meza Ozil after an entire summer of doing nothing um and Stoke getting relegated as well so there's something for everyone
1: I saw in the liner notes uh Danielson being overrun by the referee and that that's I think too soon still for me, still triggering, Uh, but that's okay. Um, So I'll just start with you really quickly, Tim. It's Arteta's first game in charge. Uh, I'm curious to get your take on how surreal it was to see him on the touchline, what the atmosphere Mm. was among the away fans, whether it really had that sort of sense of renewal and excitement that I felt sort of radiating through the television screen all the Mm. way over here. I mean, how excited were people for it and how surreal was it to see him there when you you finally saw him uh, take the touchline?
2: I, I think the excitement um really kind of came across actually on the way to everton um so slightly complicated but there's no public transport on boxing day in england anymore um there used to be but the public transport system is falling apart because um, we keep voting for shit governments but that's that's besides the point <laughs> very, um, very
1: much so yes
2: <laughs> so there's um so uh, i i, I drove up so there wasn't the same sense of usually you get a better sense when you're on the train and so last week for example on the way up to Everton he's just been appointed he's just done his opening press conference um, everyone's on the same train which means everyone's drinking at eight o'clock in the morning and that, that's when you get a better feel for the, for the temperature and actually That that felt really um, I was actually quite surprised because I thought it'd be quite a divisive appointment, not divisive in terms of people bickering and arguing about it. Not yet. But I, I, I've always had this feeling that there's like, you know, rough numbers here. 50% of Arsenal fans who love the idea of having Mikel Arteta and like 50% who hate it because they hate the type of people that that really like the idea of Mikel Arteta and stuff like that. But actually, I, I think he's really, I, you know, it's too early to say he's one people round. But I think his opening press conferences, his opening gambits, has been so impressive and so encouraging that he's got pretty much everyone on side. I think, um, with at least what the vision is, not least with his kind of talk of higher intensity, because that that appeals to everyone, right? Because if you're like, um, I don't know, if you think of things like very tactically, and you're a bit of a tactical buff, and you think of pressing and counter-pressing and press-resistant and stuff like that, like if you're a bit nerdy, um, and if you're you know, and if you're not. Um, and please don't take this as derogatory or anything. And you're just the kind of person that just wants to see your team working hard because you think they should fucking run and work hard. Then that kind of gets everyone on the side, you know. Um, but it, it was it was slightly it was quite surreal. He was directly opposite us actually, and I, and I found my eyes drawn to him quite a lot because I'm I'm so curious about all of this, but also because he was so busy and so active. And I know he said after the game that's just how I'm going to be as a manager um which which i think is fair enough but he came over at the end and he got like um he got a big cheer and people were singing his name because you know uh, and obviously we'll go into this a bit of a segue that that was better um i think i think we saw we saw something we saw a plan a vision and and we saw the team just a lot more intense, a lot more organized, and working a lot harder. And some of those quick wins he was talking about when he was unveiled, I think we saw some of those.
1: Mm, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Not some of the ones we predicted, Tim, to be fair. Things mm. like you know using Pepe, for example. We'll come on to that a little bit. Um, and, and I think what we are going to try to do is divorce this conversation from a debate about how bad Bournemouth are. We've played teams that yeah. I would argue are worse than Bournemouth, both home and away. And been meek and dominated. So I think it's silly to reference the quality of the opposition, the caliber of the opposition, because there's opposition of this level that we have not performed this way against. So we're Watford just,
2: are considerably worse than Bournemouth. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I would say that, that there are plenty of teams worse than Bournemouth or certainly within the range of terribleness that we perform worse against, including in Europa League with pretty strong sides. So I'm not going to get hung up on that. Uh, I think is it Joe Montemurro that you, you said Tim? You know, always talks about how formations are a thing that like fans and journalists discuss, yep. right? So, yep. Clive, that that's going to be really the, the tough thing for us. We love to talk formation structure. I, it's the one thing that I think the video game FIFA has done to all of us, if we're being fair. In FIFA, you try to pick the formation that they give you as options to get the most good players on the pitch in the places you want them. But what Mikel Arteta showed us in this first game. Is that you can get them on the places, in the places on the pitch you want just by you know telling them to go there. So it is a four three three, but we've been racking up. oh what formation gets Obamian close to Lacazette and what formation? Well, you know what formation a four three three does if you play Maitland Niles more infield as a midfielder in possession and slide Granite Shaka back into the left back position in possession and push Saka forward more like a a, a wide forward instead of a, a fullback in possession and you use space more intelligently that way. How interesting was it for you to see the way Arteta approached solving these kinds of problems, not with a specific formation, but in the way that he deployed these players in and out of possession?
3: Yeah, Ooh, you nailed it, right? You've answered the question by asking it, right? So, uh, Super. <laughs> yeah. So, what well, there is, you know, we we do get hung up on formations, and I when we when we see a formation, we always look at this starting formation, you know, how we line up when we kick off. But it's how we line up in and out of possession that really counts. Right? So we saw a change in that yesterday. We haven't really been looking at that closely. I think we've, in possession, I think we've been incredibly indisciplined, um, incredibly inaccurate. And that's caused a transition game, which we are very bad at. And then we have defenders running away. So we're used to that story. So the system and the formation this time, it looked like a similar four-two-three-one to me one to me when you kicked off. But then you see where Saka was playing and how aggressive he was off the ball, coming short, spinning in behind. By him controlling that side, that forces is Aubameyang, 10 yards inside. That makes him like a a, a true second striker. Then you have Nelson on the other side really working that line hard, but really used as almost like a pressing agent on that side rather than... um, you know, then a super attacker. Though he got lots of good, um, lots of good movements. You have Lacazette century, I'm afraid a lot of the chances fell to him and and Nelson, and neither of them are in super last third confidence. And then you see how meta Niles was used, and then you see, really, this is why I, I love football, right? Because we tend to look at players. We all look at players in our own way. We all look at them, we judge them on certain things. Last actions, first actions, body language, how they move, how they don't move, what they do in adversity, what they do on good days. We have our own structures by which we judge players. But I've always been a fan of Maitland-Null because I, I judge players in the hardest games. I think some of the hardest games he's done really, really well, which tells me where his extremities are it tells me how flexible he is. So from a footballing coaching perspective, he's a player I like because I can do lots of things with him. And so, and Arteta's come along first game and said, you're a player that can play many different positions. I like you, you can run, you're quick, you can move the ball, um, you have got two feet, you are inaccurate, you do knock off. You know what, you can play inside and out. And we've all known that because we debated his position. Then when you see it, you think, OK, now you've got a player of value because he holds his side, but he also plays in the middle and looks quite good in there as well. He can run behind his centre-halves and cover them. And suddenly he looks like a multifunctional all-court player. And and that's interesting. In one game, to me, he's had the best boost of any of the players just because of the way he was used. The way he was used absolutely suits his strengths. But we now have a different view of that player, and that's the and that's the beauty of the game. That is the beauty of the game. You have you have one player under one major look completely devoid of any talent and confidence and belief. Another the same player under another major suddenly feels valuable. Suddenly playing at a level where he feels he's a he's a major part, a major cog in the team. And so we're all understanding the game a bit more. In and out possession, what do we do? But what the great, the good thing for me in this game, lads, was the intention to play and where we played. And we weren't playing in, you know, so deep. We were playing much higher up. And that, in turn, made us look more like an Arsenal team because we played in the areas of the pitch that we used to see in Arsenal teams playing.
1: Yeah, I agree. But, like, the one thing that I, I think to distinguish it from, what was, uh, Jumberg's, is it the norwich game i keep thinking of the first half i thought we you know we played higher up the pitch we possessed the ball more but the spacing was sort of off and so when we lost the ball we were very exposed one of the things that i love paul is there was a moment where we lost the ball i think it was like in the left half space in in deep in their defensive third and i'm looking at the spacing and there's four arsenal players stretched right across the pitch evenly it it was just an absolute thing of beauty, and there was no easy out ball to play through us for Bournemouth, and so they kind of played it back and forth between themselves and defense, and then tried to go long and gave the ball right back to us. And it's just that that difference between like looking like it, it, it used to look like a billiards table that had been tilted too far on one side, and all the players were up against the railing, you know, under Emery, and and you just uh, the big switch would kill us every time. That big switch wasn't on. One of the things that I thought was the story of the first half, though. Paul, it was really two players: It was Torreira and Ozil for me. And I want to focus on Ozil with you for a second. The way he used Maitland-Niles, being a little more in the midfield, and let Nelson get way up the pitch and up, you know, against the touchline. The way he slid Aubameyang more central and and pushed Saka forward. I think it forced Bournemouth defenders back that extra bit deeper and they had to mark players that maybe they weren't expecting in those zones and the beneficiary for me is Ozil who had tons of space between the lines to operate because they just had one less player to to sort of occupy that space with so do you think that really helped Ozil have one of his more influential haves and and start finding through balls I mean I, I tweeted out at one point a through ball to create a chance from a central space as I live in as I live and breathe like it, it was a thing of beauty to see we hadn't seen that in so long do you think that the spacing and the utilization of those players I identified really gave Ozil the ability to to have the, the kind of quality first half he did?
4: Uh, I do. I think it created all sorts of angles. I mean, you can't look past Chuck as well in that first half as as a quarterback, uh, having much more interesting angles than he normally has and a lot less pressure with the ball. Um, but, you, you know, Clive listed off the players that were impacted by the Maitland-Niles shift towards the centre. It's interesting, Tim was talking about Arteta on the sideline and watching him there being active, etc. But you can go back and listen to the Arsenal player uh, version of the game and uh, maybe the live game uh, was the same way, but you can hear Arteta talking the whole time, positioning, you know, when he's so he's chatting to Maitland Niles quite a lot about positioning and stuff, but always in a calm voice. In other words, Maitland Niles is where he's supposed to be. And sometimes he's in the center circle on the center spot. There's another time. It's kind of only the one time he's up basically in the number 10 spot. And Arteta's is fine with it. No, you know, no additional instruction. And as you list off those players, all of the, Player, practically the whole team gets rotated because of Maitland Niles because you can keep going. Uh, Lacazette gets moved a little to the right. Reese Nelson has a level of responsibility that makes you think that's why Pepe may not be playing because he's got to get up and down that wing if we get in trouble. You got Socrates right over to the right, which means Luis is playing through the center. And when you're talking about through balls, you know, you listed Torreira and Ozol as both having really good first halves and interesting first halves because the angles in the midfield uh, kind of opened up. But why did it open up? I think it's because every single player, Bournemouth, where they're expecting to mark, was somewhere else at an interesting angle. David Luis had... This was probably his best game as a passer for our team. Some of the balls he put up through the middle. Um, you know, uh, so everybody was playing... Uh, passes from different angles uh, you also mentioned the word centrally i mean this was a game in which we when, when we were good we carved them up the middle from all sorts of angles centrally um, and it all seemed to stem as you say from one simple tweak one simple move moved what nine ten players on the pitch mm. to unusual angles that created all sorts of of uh, interesting attacking opportunities for us, and it's a shame we didn't get that first goal. But I think that's that's just an Arsenal thing. Now go down one goal just before half time to make our lives much more complicated because we'd really done a nice job of of turning this into an interesting uh, look and style of play that was giving Bournemouth all sorts of trouble. Of course, we still have our challenges on the counter. Blah blah blah. What's new there? But as you say. We had a much more interesting line across that pitch that, you know, it was kind of a freak counter in a way. It was right on the touchline. It wasn't typical of how we normally get done. And I think generally we're pretty good at stopping them running down the middle at us, which has been our Achilles heel for some time.
1: Well, the irony is our out ball under Emery was often get it to fullbacks pressed against the touchline with no easy yeah. play out, which I've always thought was insane. I mean, from that point, you're either going to go long or you have your weakest passer trying to play out with the touchline on one side and a defender on the other. Under Arteta, we almost never played out that way. Um I mean, if you, if you look at the outballs, it was usually Shaka from sort of a left half space breaking lines. David Luiz broke lines constantly. We'll talk about his performance as a ball progressor and deep distributor. But like the one time we did get pinned against the touchline is when we conceded the goal. Um, and and I feel like those kinds of turnovers were were really rampant uh, in the previous year. I don't I don't constantly want to make everything a comparison, but it's natural to do it. Tim, let's talk about Torreira's first half. To me, one of the things that just seemed so clear about this game is that, other than Ozil, who I think was the one guy who had the license to roam between the lines and find space, everyone had a fairly specific zone of operation that Mm -hmm. they were occupying. And Terrera's, to me, was the clearest. It's been he was sitting the deepest. He was shielding the two central defenders. He was operating in the central whatever you know the central quintile of the pitch between. The, the, the top of the defensive zone and the midfield stripe. And that was it. That was his the area he was asked to occupy. And I think it allowed him to concentrate on doing the things he's really good at. And, you know, he played 68 passes successfully, attempted 77. I mean, he was our third most active passer. But he, and he did have, I think he had one really good line-breaking pass that led to a chance. But for the most part, he was doing the things that he needs to do, which is regain, retain, give it to Shaka, regain, retain, you know, give it to Louise, whatever the case was. Mm. Do you think that the minimization of his role, so to speak, giving him a simple task in smaller space, allowed him to to really be a star player for us, at least for the first you know sixty minutes or so of the game? I, th-
2: I think the latter thing you said there is the key, the the smaller space. Um, I don't necessarily. Well, I mean, I guess it is a simpler job, but that kind of sounds like damning him with faint praise in that. We, the the job we were giving him beforehand was far too complicated and confused and we had him you know we tried to have him covering like 40 yards of space which is which is not really what he does i mean what what we saw actually was was very pep in terms of it was the kind of wm thing so it was 2 3 2 3 yep. um kind of shape um, um but what was really smart about it um was that it was almost look, like he looked at the strengths and the weaknesses of the players and, you know, bang in one game. And, and look, I, d- I know we don't want to go massively overboard because this is a draw with Bournemouth and we all know that there's lots of lots of road to travel yet. But, it you know, straight away, he kind of worked out, right, Xhaka, where where are you good and where are you weak? Right. We're going to put you back into this kind of almost left centre back role when we've got possession. So you're not pressed. But you've got time to pick out passes. Saka, you're not really a fullback, so we're gonna push you right up and let you play basically as a winger. Um Maitland Niles, you kind of you wanna be a bit of a central midfielder? We'll tuck you in a little bit. And just like an Abameyang, alright, you're kind of starting from the left, but because we're gonna push Saka right up, you go in the centre every time we work the ball down there and just player by player. And then Urzil, just kind of run free. Um, You know, move out to the right occasionally when kind of Nelson and Maitland-Niles are coming in and you're kind of stretching the opposition and, and just like one by one, he'd sorted out not just the players' strengths, but their weaknesses and kind of made a plan for them. Um, it seemed uh, maybe that's all just a massive coincidence, and maybe a couple of players will get injured, and he'll struggle to do that with different players. I don't know, but it just looked really quickly like he'd he'd kind of figured that out, and and like you say, no one more so than Torreira. I am, um, I think Torreira is a really good passer of the ball. Um, I think he get. I, I don't think his passing's appreciated because I think. Xhaka has almost warped um, our perception of what a passing midfielder does. Mm. And because that's like Xhaka's, you know, it's his his top trump kind of thing. But I think because of the way he does it, usually, which is receive the ball, take a couple of seconds, get it on the left foot, get it a yard away, wrap your foot around it. You know, it's so deliberate and so obvious that it's kind of warped our perception of what a passing midfielder actually does. Torreira... um, Ah uh, maybe this is a bad analogy, but in many ways kind of reminds me of Walcott in terms of like everything he does should be within like two, three seconds. And actually, he can still make and he still does regularly make those line breaking passes so long as he does them quickly. So long as his actions are quick, you know, win the ball, look up, pass it. And that doesn't always mean it's a simple sideways pass. I think he's really good at passing through the lines. I just I think he's one of those people that just needs to do everything very, very quickly. Um, and he was able to do that and and you know he was able to offset the fact that Ozil had a bit of a free role. um the fact that Maitland Niles was kind of coming in field and we were a bit protected from the counter and Xhaka, you know didn't really get over the halfway line, which is which is weird because he was slightly more advanced um but i think I think what you saw from all of these players was just the benefits of having a structure. And I retweeted this on my timeline, but someone posted the average position chart from the last game against Everton, um, which looks like someone who's going into cardiac arrests, like heart rate. (laughs) And then like the average position map from this game, which looks like Tetris, basically. It's just like, it's a, particularly the front four is just a completely straight line, Mm -hmm. um, and and then the midfield stripe is pretty straight. The only the only deviance is that like Louise is pushed quite a bit higher up than Socrates. That's it. The rest of it is just like straight blocks.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and and Torreira was and 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 there you've got you've got a structure around a player like Torreira who can then just like tear around in his little kind of 25 yard space and do what he needs to do you reduce the space in which ozil operates so you can give him that free roll to drift to the right and everything but he's not doing that in isolation on a massive island on his own he's always got like a passing option within 10 to 15 yards and and yeah you know you referenced um a conversation i had with uh, with joe montemoro several conversations i had with him i, I Put some quotes of his in 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 my column this week, actually. But yeah, the th- the thing he always says to me is, we don't work on formations. We work on get the ball, look up, pass available, and then the next person when they get the ball should see a pass available, and that's how we work. We don't work on mm. four-three-three. Three. We work on lines, and that's and I think that's what you saw here, and and players like Torreira and Urzil who have, you know, someone like Xhaka sit there, sit in your pocket. Um, Socrates, louise obviously, Maitland-Niles tuck in a bit, but Torreira, it's a bit like, look, we're going to reduce the space in which it is necessary for you to tear around and win tackles. Um, we don't want you sprinting 30 yards before you go and make a slide tackle because someone's been allowed 30 yards to run into, but we reduce the space around you and you can just do that buzz in, tackle, recovery, and then there's a teammate 5, 10 yards away from you and just making those distances nice and compact. And um, if we can keep doing that, I think um, we will start to quickly reevaluate um the, the, the quality of player we've got, which is not absolutely amazing top tier, but it's not as bad as people think either.
1: No, and, and I, I'll push back on one thing too. I mean, you made the point, hey, this is a draw against Bournemouth. We have a long way to go. I agree, we have a long way to go. But I do think, you know, for a long time under Emery, we were very careful to point out that Sometimes the results were good, but the process was bad. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I mean, you're going to draw some games where you outplay the opposition, where you play the way you want to play and it just doesn't fall for you. Like, I'm happy with this performance. If we play this way continually, it will lead to win. You know, the problem with the long unbeaten run last season was we all looked at it and said, if we continue to play this way, it's going to deteriorate. And that's exactly what happened.
2: If we... If we score first in this game, there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that we win. Yes. Whereas I, I don't think I've thought that for months.
1: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And by the way, you know, you talked about spacing and and the Tetris thing. Like again, I'll, I'll just reiterate it because I like to repeat myself. We lost the ball at one point in the left wing, and I looked up and I, I guarantee, if you'd taken a ruler out and measured the distance between the four players stretched across the pitch, it would have been equidistant. The spacing was perfect and to be able to achieve that with just a couple training sessions is interesting and you know what's fun guys when you see something on the pitch that harkens back to something that you saw in a training video or something you know a lot of times with emery i felt like what is he teaching them in training because i don't see it so did you see the video clip going around where they were doing sort of like a rondo or passing drills and and lacazette i think it was asked if he could do like flicks and back heels and arteta was like no i just want you to see who you're passing to and face the player and make a pass and i'm thinking okay well that's interesting and sure enough, I mean, Shaq had a good game. We'll come on to the, ga- the game he had. But one thing he got wrong in the first half is he tried to flick in midfield. Flick. And it it, yeah. it was uh, picked off by Bournemouth and started a really dangerous move. It was a really bad giveaway. And it was so interesting because I was like, there you have it. That's exactly what Arteta is saying. I want you to see who you're passing to. We need to eliminate those turnovers. You know, we need to keep possession. Possession is important. We need to move the ball quickly, but quickly and effectively. And I, you know what hey, you love? I- yeah, please.
2: Sorry, I was just going to say. Can I just? I, I wanted to make a quick point about. Um, I, I got there quite early because we drove, and I saw the warm up. And um, you know, obviously, look, we all think these things are great when they're happening for the first time. We did under Emery, but the warm up, um, the warm up's worth watching if you're going to the Chelsea game because they they warmed up with a Rondo that was like. 10 times the pace that I've ever seen them do in a game, let alone in a warm-up. It was furious. It was, you know, play, there was none of this kind of, oh, be careful, like when you're when you're pressing a play. It was fierce, it was fast, it was competitive. Um, and there, there was quite an interesting kind of thing that one of the coaches did, I think Steve Round with the back four, where he had them all in a line and he threw the ball up in the air and he had one of them coming out and attacking it. You know to win the header and then he wanted the other three like it's obviously a drill they have right that it's like right if one of the center halves comes out you know to attack the ball the other three of you have to move accordingly and they were just doing this drill over and over of chucking the ball up in the air and one of Luis or socrates attacks it and the fullbacks backs like compact and and move and and it, there's obviously a lot of kind of choreography Mm. Going on here.
1: Yeah. And it, it, it's great to see. And I, you know, you love to see the things that you think are being worked on on the training ground translate onto the pitch. I thought the ball moved faster. You know, look at Mesut Ozo's passing chart for the West Ham game, for example, like the last competitive Emory match in the Premier League. I'm not, you know, you're not going to count the, was West Ham uh, an Emory match? Gosh, I can't even remember anymore. I think it might have been. But no, no, it was a, it was a Friday match, wasn't it? But you go back and you look at any of these pass maps for, for Ozil. And every pass in the final third is out to the wing. And then you look at his pass map in this game and lots of final uh, uh, passes into the box, lots of central passing. And just to sort of plagiarize Scott, since he is a member of this podcast and, and will be on again soon, from his uh, By the Numbers column for, for Ars blog. I mean, the most shots we've managed in an away match this season and the third highest in a Premier League away match during the Emory era, that's an Orbinio stat from Opta. 12 shots allowed, the fifth fewest in an away match this season. Plus five shot differential, the highest in any away match this season. Second highest was plus one, twice, at at Norwich and Sheffield. 127 passes completed in the final third, our third highest mark in an away match. 19 passes into the box, the highest total in an away match. So, like, we were doing a lot of the things that we have failed to consistently do. And I think you see, structurally, we are set up to be able to do those things better. Clive... So, a, a couple of things here. I think we have to unfortunately talk a little bit about the the letdown from the front three. Uh, because it is a part of the story of this game. I mean, this was a game where we had opportunities. A lot of them fell to Lacazette and Nelson. And a lot of the good dangerous moves fell to Saka and Nelson in wide positions. The caliber of the crossing and the the final ball, unfortunately, was not there today. And you could argue, well, maybe they're just not used to getting into scoring position that often. But... Um, that is something you know. We are quick to criticize defenders when they get it wrong. We are quick to criticize a midfielder when they don't complete a pass. So I think we do have to sort of evaluate the performance of of the forward line in this game. And and Saka, I mean, look, he's an 18 year old playing fullback. Admittedly, more like a wide forward in this game than than a defensive fullback. But you know, you don't you don't want to kill the young kids. But what's your takeaway from the performance of the forward line, and you know how? how much of this is down to us needing to maybe choose some different players or, or it just wasn't their day? What's what's your evaluation of the performance they had in the final third?
3: Yeah, I thought um there's some quality and decision issues in the, in the last third. I, I, really, I really felt that. Especially I with the crossing, for, right? Not really. Yeah, everything, it, right? So I felt for a while that the forwards have been a bigger part of our problem than people have given us credit for. Um, I think we look at the forwards, we see their names, we see their wages, and we see their costs. And we we don't really blame them. We blame the the last thing we see on the screen, which is normally uh, Socrates or Luis running after somebody They're slot the ball in the net, right? So, and then we obviously know we've got issues in defense, but I also felt, and I said this on the podcast, that one of our biggest issues is our security in the last third. I don't think we've been very good. And because of that we've been transitioned on historically so what we saw this time was much better shape much more idea better idea about how we protect each other create partnerships Um, Nelson almost protecting Maitland-Niles and Ozil that type of player is was needed on the day it'd be interesting to see how that role gets fulfilled going forward Um also on the left hand side Saka's role Asaka, I believe, is a really good crosser. Uh, uh, if you look at his previous games, he puts the ball right on the button a lot. You know, one touch whipped round the corner. But the problem this game was not just in the accuracy of the final ball on a very, very wet day, getting increasingly wet, and the pitch probably not the best. As I was, by the game. way, as
1: I watched more of Arteta's football, increasingly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: yeah, I think it was one of those games where <laughs> the ball was... Um, it was just stopping to, stopping flowing towards the end and I think that actually stopped us from winning the game in my opinion Um but also the big issue in this game Elliot was you talk about spacing was our lines in the box and our ability to attack the box I felt we on numerous occasions we we basically just ran on the same line and butchered butchered breakaways by just running straight I call them kitty runs mm-hmm. we made kiddie runs we made kiddie runs into the box me 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 give it to me give it to me give it to me <laughs> without looking at without looking at who's around us right and um it's something I, I learned from a video i watched around about jürgen klopp's crossing model how he always creates a triangle in the box when they attack the box create a triangle so when you run in if you see two parts of the triangle in place make your tool you make the third part and you automatically create options and lines by doing that and I said this before, but I thought we were stupid in the box. So but hey, it's just one it's just one game. So of course now the way we react is to um you know sell Lacazette to Iceland or somewhere long as we get the money to you know the I mean? country of Iceland and, uh, or a specific club there? <laughs> <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> anywhere apart mm-hmm. from anywhere near our penalty box. Yeah, fair enough. Because that, that's what that's what we do, isn't it, right? We do that. And you know, I, I must admit I've had a bit of concerns about Lacazette since the start of the season. But it's not around this game, it's more about his um, his mood, his fitness, his mobility and what he's actually offering us. He's not quite offering us a, a post-up connector, he's not quite being a Firmino, he's not quite being a goal scorer away from home. And I think he has some mental weaknesses that he normally overcomes with hard work and effort and pressing. So you can go one of two ways, you either smile up, jump on board the bus... Or you can be that pressing trigger for this team, which may be in fashion when we need you. So I think he's got a way to go fitness-wise or we can judge him. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I I'm, I think we need to look at our team. I felt watching this game, I was wow. really quite impressed with the with the back end of the team. But actually, it almost highlighted the lack of quality we had in the box. Does that, does that make sense? I felt we had a lack of quality in the top third. Real devastation. And I, ha- I lacked a little bit of belief about what they were going to do. My hope index was down. But I was smiling inside because our intention was clear. And it's obviously they've done a lot of work on creating splits, creating lines to break through, a lot of work on passing forward, running off the first movement, offensive triggering. And when they do these rondos, what they're looking to do is to create, move two players around and then split them. Get a line between them go through the other side. They're not just doing it for passing angles. It's really to move people, create an angle, split. Right? That's where you see it. And that's where you normally get a point for it in a rondo. Because you split somebody, you nutmeg somebody. That's what they're doing. That's what they're trying to create. And I thought that we did that quite well. We suck people in, bam, bam, bang, bang, split. Straight through, out the other side. Elves are running away like a three-year-old. It looked quite easy, didn't it, when you do it? When you mm. do it well, do it off one touch, do it with pace. You bring people in, and I think we caught them by surprise by the way we played. And they'd had nothing to see. You know, Had heard Eddie Howe say we had no videos to watch. We did not know what was going to expect. And we caught them. The only time they got us was when they stepped onto us and pressed us. And that's when we messed up. That's when we conceded. We didn't quite adjust to them. We didn't quite fade it over the top because we'd done that, we'd have carried on. We just kept playing the same way. Got caught by a touchline and, and conceded a goal. But yeah, promising. But last third, got to up the quality. Let's give him a bit more time.
1: Yeah, I think if we're going to be intellectually consistent, we have to agree that what we've asked for is activity in the final third. And most often, activity will result in good things happening. It didn't happen as much as it should have in this game. But like, Lacazette had four shots with .45 expected goals. He had two-shot assists with 0.19 expected goal assists. He passed at 91%. He completed a dribble. He had three ball recoveries. He was very, very active. And it didn't come off for him in the way that he would like. But I think we have to admit that a striker who's very active and involved and has chances falling to him is is what you want. Now, look, if game in, game out, game in, game out, he's not converting those, that's a problem. And if if I had to pick a Lacazette, Shortcoming, It would be, I think he's slightly slow to get a shot off in situations where the opportunity is there. I think that's where Aubameyang is just that bit better. I think he's just quicker to get his shot in space. Um,
4: You'd have to add, though, on Lacazette, that you know he hasn't had any love this year from the managers. He hasn't played much. So him being about 10% off in this game in terms of sharpness and quickness of getting a shot off or confidence, etc., would not be too yeah, shocking. I, agree that. I yeah. think, to your point, he was busy, active, he was up the middle a couple of times, one on one with the keeper. It got blocked by the defender. So you could read this performance either way. If he gets better, if he gets more confident, gets a bit more love, uh, gets a little sharper, you know, today or that game could have been a really good game for Lacazette. He was darn close to having a good game, but like it was 10% off.
1: Yeah. And, and look, I'll, t- I'll tell you something too. Like, the. We used to have this debate about we don't get enough shots under Emery, and there's the argument, well, do you want to get shots or do you want to get quality shots? Because one stat that was consistently pretty good under Emery is when we did get shots, they tended to be high XG shots, pretty good quality chances. But we took 17 shots in this game, and where did our goal come from? It didn't actually come from the clear chances we created from clean play. Aubameyang's, I'm not going to call it a tap-in, it's a good finish, but his clear shot comes from what? Nelson taking a shot that gets blocked and happens to fall to Aubameyang. And sometimes when you shoot, when you get the ball into the penalty area, when you create shot opportunities, the chaos that results from it is what goals come from. I mean, for every one really beautiful goal that's scored in football, there's probably three or four that are scored through chaos, right? So we created more of that chaos. And and granted, it only resulted in one goal. But thankfully, it was one goal and not zero. And so I, I think that we had the right balance of trying to create good chances from good play and also getting our shots off to potentially have the opportunity to score from rebounds or second secondary, you know, whatever you call second phase, which is how we got the Obamian goal. The disappointment, Paul, unfortunately, right, was that in the real decisive moments, Lacazette threw on goal, um, the four-on-two counter late in the game where Willick takes the bad shot after I think Lacazette chooses the wrong, the wrong option there, a couple of really bad crosses from Saka and Nelson when there were players in the box available. We just weren't decisive in those moments. And unfortunately... Lock is as that aside, I can think of a few of those moments falling to some of the younger players. I mean, the Willick shot on the four-on-two counter, that's a really, really unfortunate one. Before we come on to Shaka, which I think is important to discuss, Paul, just quickly, do you have any insight or guesses as to the decision-making with lineups and substitutions? I mean, the the, the decision to bring Willick on, the decision to start with Nelson. I mean, Pepe did come on in this game, and I thought he was actually pretty good, completed all seven of his passes, had the most take-ons in the game in his short time on the pitch, the things you'd expect from him. But what's your um, mm. hypothesis about some of the choices that that Arteta made and why he might have made them? Well,
4: it, it, again, it was interesting listening to the Arsenal player. You can hear him, especially in the second half, uh, talking to Ozil to make sure his energy levels and his his challenges and that he stays in the game. Um, and he gets yanked a little bit after after we get our goal. And Mesut plays an important but small role in the goal with the. He he's the guy I believe who feeds the pass to Abamyang, uh, but you know it's a quick decision that makes all the difference to get that that ball to him. Um, but he yanks him, and maybe Ozo's going to be a seventy-minute player this season, or at least for the next few games, till he gets his kind of. He hasn't play, He himself hasn't played that much in reality. <clears throat> maybe his game fitness isn't where it needs to be. So, um, you know, we got him off. We got Willoughby. I don't know who was who 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 substituted for who but we got Willock on for some extra legs um it was Willock for, for Ozil right okay yeah uh, that sounds about right and if it wasn't directly then it, it still makes sense in terms of what they were supposed I mean, we to bring inf- yeah Willick's- we had
1: the enforced change I should mention just real quick Paul like we don't yeah. know what Arteta's substitution plan might have been but having to take a central defender off for injury like certainly influenced that I'm sure
4: yeah, on the other hand, it gave me my favorite moment of the game. I tweeted this. There's a flash of yellow on the screen on 91 Minutes that uh, Fraser uh, hurdles as he's running up the left wing, and I'm like, what the fuck was that? And the commentator says, that's Maitland Niles uh, diving in for a tackle or something like that. It was not. It was Mustafi. Absolutely Mustafi.
3: 100- <laughs> oh, uh, uh, I'll,
4: uh, I'll RT my photo of it. It's hilarious. It's just a yellow streak that disappears like it's almost subliminal on the picture as uh, <laughs> Fraser awesome.
1: sorry I interrupted those. yeah so go on about the getting the extra legs on and, and yeah, yeah. so
4: yeah uh, and in terms of the, the young players I mean Saka uh, I thought Saka was very uh, I know so most of his crossing was poor or a bit wayward but as uh, Clive alluded to you know he does whip in a really good cross and he did it two or three times in this game he had two good ones uh, into the six-yard area that nobody got to. And he c- had a couple of other good moments. And this Maitland-Niles swirl does get him into the position to do that. Um, but, he, you know, he's played another 90 minutes. I think he's been a very credible fullback for us in the last couple of games, all things allowed. Yes, he, he definitely played a role in their goal. But, I mean, we've seen that happen with uh, whether it's Nacho or whoever in that spot of the pitch getting caught a little up up too far upfield with a maybe an unwise ball that gets picked off and shit happens. Um, so I think overall he's been good. Um, I mean, uh, who do, Pepe coming on? Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. I mean, he he was excellent for the whatever 15 or so minutes he was on the pitch. Uh, definitely changed the energy of the game. On the other hand. Uh, you know, he does tend to slow down the play a little bit and be a bit of a ball hog. And put, uh, uh, and what Maitland, or what uh, Reese Nelson did all game, it was an interesting cast, a uh, uh, contrast between the two players. Uh, Nelson was all connectivity, connective tissue, moving the ball around. A couple of his crosses, especially in the first half, were off. But, hey, Um Probably pretty nervous getting his uh, a, a really good first start under Arteta um, and really helped build play with Ozil in that pocket on that side of the pitch. So Pepe coming on was definitely a change and gave us some energy, but it's a place for him to start. But then you see him ahead of Maitland-Niles, and, and uh, that's when uh, Mustafi comes flying in. Uh, for a, a tackle down the right-hand side because Maitland-Niles is upfield as is Pepe. So um, we were going for it, which was good, but mm. yeah.
1: Yeah, so, all right. Well, I, I think it's time, Tim. We, we got to head back down into the mine, into the granite shack assault mines and and uh, dig away at this one again. This is a player that it is it is impossible at this point to get away from... The biases and conclusions that people have drawn about him. And I will admit, and I, I tweeted this, look, football is about having favorites and it's about having players that you don't particularly care for. I mean, Clive, if I may, Ramsey never hit your eye right. Not a player you ever really fell in love with. Doesn't mean he was bad. Doesn't mean you were right or wrong. It, you were able to see his positives when he had them, but you never loved him. It just wasn't he didn't suit you for one one reason or another. Okay? Like yeah. we have those players and and that's part of football. Like you're going to have the ones you love and the ones you don't. I have to hold my hand up and say Shaka is never going to be a player I love. The mobility issues, some of the the poor decision making in absolutely crucial moments, you know, like like the penalty against Brighton last season for example, like it drives me crazy. And and I just think the the turning radius of the battleship like whatever it is, for one reason or another, he's never going to be my favorite. You still have to be stubborn as hell to not be able to look at a player when they have a good game and say that's a good game. Apart from the mm-hmm. flick that we already mentioned, this was a pretty masterful display from Shaka in a really interesting role. That two-three in possession, right? The the sort of two in in midfield that um, you know became a three at the back of of Socrates, uh, Louise, and Shaka filling into that sort of left central defensive role, so Saka could range up the pitch. It worked really well for him, and he was able to break lines. He was able to play through balls. He created a lot of opportunities, played the most passes, very high completion percentage, a lot of ball recoveries, just an excellent role for him. And, you know, the temptation is to go right to narrative because this is a player that Arteta apparently wanted at City, rated very highly, um, and he steps into this first game and, and has the kind of game that we haven't seen for him really since Arsene left, and, and, and just a really masterful performance. So I'm curious to get your take on... What this means for Shaka going forward at a time when he is rumored to want to leave and be willing uh, uh, be allowed to leave and if there's a potential redemption story here for just just basically your analysis of the game and, and what the ramifications of it are.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it looks like we kind of um, found a bit of a role for him, and, you know, for much reasons I touched on earlier. Like, we, we put him in an area where his his weaknesses weren't exposed. And it's probably the best we've seen from him since the end of, uh, that, of the Wenger season where we were playing a back three and he was just sat in front of a back three. Um, and again, we kind of minimised the space. I think the other thing I liked about this was Did we talk about on the last pod, you know, that actually him whacking... Like, he's really good at hitting diagonal passes, right? Mm -hmm. But when he has to do that every single time, that's not good. Like... That, that means your distances are, are messed up. Um, that should be something that you know you just keep up your sleeve as a, as a once-in-a-while kind of thing. It's not something you should be doing every time you get the ball. And the thing I quite liked about sitting him quite far over to the left as opposed to the centre was it just meant that, particularly with Saka pushed up, it just meant with the ball on his left foot, he was just popping the ball over on the left all mm-hmm. the time. Um, and again you can show and and he's got Luis right next to him too as an option too which I think works really well the three of those guys and that opens up the right-hand side of the pitch because Luis wants that ball on his right foot. And, you know, you, you've got a bit more of a radar there. And, you know, you keep that up your sleeve where, you know, one in every, I don't know, 20, 25 passes or whatever, you switch it if if the switch is on and that's the right thing to do. But what, what we weren't doing in this game was, you know, the repetitive, give it to Xhaka wait 15 seconds while he gets it onto his left foot. And then he looks at which fullback he's going to hit from 60 yards. And that that's not healthy to just do that all the time. This, this was much better. Again, we reduced the space around him. And, uh, and actually what we discovered was that he's he's quite good at short passing too. He's quite good at... Th- this is what he was doing kind of at the beginning uh, when we saw him, those kind of line-breaking passes when he was looking for Ozil in the centre um, before we decided to make him. You know, like uh, when baseball players, like um, when the batter warms up and, um, you know, they don't have the pitcher, they just have that machine mm-hmm. that, yep. that lobs balls. Like he became like that, right? <laughs> Or like when tennis players warm up and they just have a machine lobbing balls at them so they can test their forearm. That that's kind of what Jacques has become for us, just like a a little like ball cannon that we sit in the, <laughs> the center circle. And uh, and actually, I, I, I quite like this where you know he was his shorts his short passing is good. Like he he hits the ball with a nice pace on it, like. Um, he he puts a message on the ball when he passes it 10-15 yards and, and I think we've lost that in recent times as to what it means in the long term I mean it it sounds to me very much like he's made his mind up and he will go to any team that will have him as quickly as possible um, and unfortunately I think that's Shaq's impetuousness coming through again that he's just decided he's been wronged and he's done with it all um, I, I would like you know listen I'd I'd like him to stay until the end of the season. I, I'm, I'm all right with him going at the end of the season. I, I'd like as little disruption as possible. I think we've had a lot of disruption, you know, this season already with with Xhaka himself. And, you know, we were just talking about Lacazette. Lacazette gets an injury two weeks before the season starts. That, to me, is the worst possible time to pick up an injury no player ever has a good season when that happens to them when they get an injury right at the end of pre-season no but like every single player I can think of that, that has ever happened to has had at least three four months where they've not really performed after that mm. um and, and I just think we need to minimize that disruption um at the moment and and you know I, I hope that you know the, the reports kind of say that Xhaka feels um Feels was a bit wronged by the contradictory internal and external messaging around him. If that's true, which it might not be that. I mean, again, I think to me, that's just his kind of, you know, if you put two sugars in my tea instead of one, I'm going to say, right, that's it. I'm leaving kind of thing. He's, yeah, of he's just looking for a way out. Um, but actually, I, I think if that's what Arteta's done, I, I think that's the right way to go about it. Just to kind of look, we've got a role for you here. We will use you. And in the summer, if you want to go, fine, we'll deal with that. But we will play you and we'll play you in a way that doesn't expose you quite as much as you've been exposed and, the, and where you can be a bit more comfortable. Um, and, and I think that would be best for everyone. I do think look, the, the relationship is probably never going to be hunky-dory between him and the fans. His relationship doesn't seem to be damaged with his teammates. So he do- he doesn't have to like come and thump the badge and kiss the badge and you know um acknowledge the north Bank every game like he can still do his job every day on the training ground and when he plays the games without like pretending to be matey and chummy with the fans and the fans have not been on his back um while he's been back in the team that that hasn't happened he's come back in and that that I, I say ridden that storm that storm's just not come up again it's just you know like I say there's probably an underlying tension there but that's all it is and I personally I, I just I'd like him to stay till the end of the season, ride this out. He might, if, and if, if he can play in a more comfortable position for him in a better structured team that doesn't expose his weaknesses and he plays well for four or five months, he might get something better than Hertha Berlin and Arsenal might get more than 20 million pounds and it could just work out for everyone. And I just hope that just for once, just for once, someone has a word in his ear and just says, stop being so fucking impetuous mm. about everything. Calm down and go in the summer and everybody wins. That, that's what I'd like to happen from this.
1: Yeah, well said. I, I mean, it is a situation where letting him go in January means almost certainly having to buy not just a central midfielder, but maybe a couple and at least one who is extremely experienced and ready to play right away. Because, I mean, I love Ganduzi, but Ganduzi, Torreira, and then kids. I mean, Ceballos, remember him? Does he still exist? Like, that's it. That's your midfield. Depending on whether you consider Ozil, you know, a a central midfielder, which I don't. So, it's just not enough. And whatever you think of Shaka, like, he can eat up minutes effectively in central midfield against smaller teams like this and ping 100 passes, and you need that. What I think is really interesting about his role in this game, to your point, his three most prevalent passes in this game were to... Torreira, Luis, and his number one, I think, let me double check this so I get it right. In order, it was Saka, Luis, and Torreira. Those were his his most common. Then he had the big switches to Maitland-Niles and Nelson as the next seven and seven. But 21 to Saka. Look at the pass map of those passes. That's not your typical central midfielder to fullback, you know, lateral passes out to the wing in the defensive third. They're all in the attacking half from central midfield. So he was playing it to Saka like a left like a like a wing back almost up the pitch into the attacking third to Louise it was all uh, vertical uh, all um lateral right in a line and then Torreira short passes to give him the quick easy out right next to him right in front of him so he had two short passes on Louise and Torreira and one longer line breaking pass to Saka and that's what he emphasized from that left half space sitting back there next to Louise and it worked really well for him um, before we sort of look ahead to Chelsea and United coming up and. And what we'll do with those games. I want to quickly touch on the defensive side of the game, Clive. And, and the player that I'm interested in talking about is Louise. And whether you saw any difference in his game. I don't think this was like a masterful Louise performance or anything. But what I will say is for the first time, I think we saw him given license to stride out a little more. And play some of the passes we hoped we would see. And I wonder if the reason we saw it is that he was given license to do it. Or just that the the way that the players were positioned on the pitch, he had more options to do it. He had one Absolutely unbelievable through ball. I cannot remember who it was to or what the situation was at all because my memory is mush right now. But we did see some of the Up range of the middle? Of, yeah, it was right through the middle, but I can't remember who it was Lacazette. To, it was to Lacazette. Yeah, I mean we saw some of the range of passing from him that in our best case scenario of what he could be for us, being a a, a guy who could jump start the the attack, short, you know, short shortcut the attack from central defense is is something we hoped for. And he did that in this game. Were there any slight uh, uh, silver linings for you with Louise in this game? Reasons to be optimistic about what he can do for us that we haven't seen so far?
3: You, you know what I'm going to say. As I was the one that's been criticizing where he's been defending Well, exactly, Trump. yeah. I mean, that. that's yeah, why I'm so, asking you specifically. <laughs> so, yeah, he obviously, um, what he did, and I was watching him closely, he said he was more front-footed. He just stepped forward rather than stepped backward. It's obvious someone's had a word in him. So when people had the ball in front, his natural tendency was to fall back. He was just stepping forward a bit more. And when you play football, you you dictate what the opposition does by what you do. It's almost like just getting your punch off. So if he's stepping forward, people are automatically be looking at their touch, looking at their looking at their sort of movement. They're dinking the ball in over the top. You notice how many times that um Leno came out and took crosses? You know, because we were pushing up. So obviously he's been told, when we push up, make sure you're alive to the ball in behind. Yeah. Suddenly you think you see Leno taking crosses much higher up. It's cause and effect in football, it's very, very simple. If you do one action, make sure you, you mitigate it, you counteract it. And so Louise now felt more comfortable because he didn't feel he was holding the whole shop on himself, you know, keeping it alive. He could press forward knowing that people would be doing work behind him. And so when he presses forward, the spaces are reduced. When the spaces are reduced, Arsenal's slow jogging team suddenly doesn't look so slow because they're not running 50 yards. They're running 10 yards, which Torreira can do, which Maitland-Arles can do. So Tim alluded to earlier on what was really, really key to all of this was we've got people doing the things they like doing. So Louise was pressing up and passing. Now he got criticised, and Tim will remember this in the in the World Cup semi-final. He, when he's under pressure, he does go chasing the ball sometimes, presses up and goes running after it to get on it. But you got to use that as a strength and, and mitigate it, right? So it's interesting that he's in our top three passing combinations. Oh, shock! David Luiz can pass. Let's make sure he passes a lot more than some of the other blokes who can't. That's really good. Shaka can pass. Can we get him the ball to pass a lot more? Saka can run. Can we get him to spin in behind? Maitland-Niles and Torreira are two best midfield coverers. When we're on the ball, can we just tuck him in a little bit? Maitland-Niles, can we just get him closer to Torreira? That will discourage people running through the green grass of the middle. And it's just very very simple You know, can we get the combination of Lacazette and the Aubameyang closer together at the moment I trust you Ozil just to be the one on the backspin to help build play but if you can't do it Aubameyang can you tuck in and make the square and if you can't do it Aubameyang you go to left touchdown I saw Saka doing it one time create the square build up so it all starts from for me from the back line positioning can we press the game up if we press the game up, we're now playing where we want to play. When we're playing where we want to play, we look like a team we all recognize. And so the fear and the why, what I'm now thinking, where, how where has this come from? This is partly coaching, and this, this sort of coaching, I've seen it many, many times. But why Why I'm really excited is because if you can do this, this tells me that the, the thing that people are concerned about Arteta is the thing that I'm most excited about. This is about man management. Recognising your players' strengths and weaknesses and deploying them accordingly. That to me is the differentiator. There are everyone knows tactics, everyone has data, everyone has passing maps, everyone can see the touches, everyone can see the heat maps, everyone can see average positions. But if you can recognise your players and then deploy them, that is it. That is the key. That is the difference. And so people are saying this is a risk. I'm sitting back with my cigar on because all I'm waiting for now is how we recruit. Because if we recruit properly with the right type of player, this guy's going to see them and deploy them against a framework which he recognizes. Mm. That is the intelligence of the modern elite coach. And he has it. If he's done this in a week, What's he going to do with better players? What's he going to do with more time? i tell you what he's going to do. He's going to change our fortunes. I'm telling you, he's going to change our fortunes because if you can do that with a team of joggers, what are you going to do with a team of hard-running, sprinting players with much more technical security and power in the last third to finish? You're going to see a lot of good things come from this club, and I hope he's supported appropriately.
1: Yeah, I mean, while we've spent a year waffling on about God, what do you do with these fullbacks and we don't have fullbacks and how do you get Aubameyang closer to Lacazette? Oh, well maybe it's a 442 or 4 diamond 2 or if we go 4231 but you, and then he just comes in and he's like, "No, it's a 443 and you tuck Maitland-Niles in and you push Saka up and you let Shaka drop in left and you push him Ob- and you're like, "Oh, well when you say it like that it makes tons of sense." And you think he clearly has the tactical intelligence to set the team up the way it needs to to, to thrive. I I think you can say that in one game um he didn't make any glaring mistakes the substitutions you know i looked at them and i was like oh you know i want this and i want that but unlike with an emery i trusted that he had a plan and the plan seemed to work and there was no period of the game where i thought well the game has just fallen to shit it it seemed to work i mean look the one thing that you could see was fitness issues at one point reese nelson was out on his feet like before he got subbed off he he could and i think maybe he had a hamstring issue so that's not Totally fair to call it a fitness issue. I think he might have had some tightness in his hamstring. Ozil was definitely fading. But that's good. That means they put the shift in. They had to. Before we start to look ahead, uh, Paul, you wanted to add just a few seconds about Socrates and, and right-footed defending?
4: Yeah, so um, the la- Socrates had been getting some bad press recently. I don't know what his stock price was, but it fell massively over his last three starts for us. Obviously, he missed a game. Uh, to, to be
1: fair, but- I've thought he's been bad for more than a year, so... You know, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I was, yeah. I was but, ahead of the but trend, But he's yeah. been
4: even, wherever you were at, you thought he was worse recently. Yeah, fair um, enough, yeah. But he was been played on the left in the previous three starts against City, Standard Liège, and I think West Ham before that. And he was absolutely fucking terrible. And like, I defend him a bit, as I tend to do, home for strays, that kind of thing. Um, but he's been absolute cat piss. Um, <laughs> but he is our most one-footed player I did a little analysis based on uh, FB Ref, I think it's the site, with the, the stats bomb stats, and I, I looked at the the one-footedness of our players, and he, he uses his left foot 4% of the time. Probably all of those come from the, the three games where he was played on the left. Do not play him as a left centre-back, and that's doing him a massive injustice. So obviously in this game, he was at least okay, there's nothing too much to say about Socrates, but he was playing with his right foot. God bless him. Mm. Um, other interesting stats, Danny Sabayas, Socrates is 4%. Sabayas uh, 5%. Ganduzi 6%, which kind of shocked me. Um, Granit Xhaka is pretty good. He's 16%, which is, which is good all around. And David Luiz on 28%, as you might expect. So, you know, that lineup of those two players, we might start, not that we've never seen those two line up like that, but that's a much more natural pairing for Socrates and Luis. Hopefully Socrates is now too long, but that's that's what I wanted to say.
1: Let me just stay with you for one second, Paul. It's one game, so let's make wild sweeping conclusions. For people (laughs) that are concerned about Arteta being in over his head, the job being too big for him, I mean, that was not a concern I had, and part of it was like, if he sucks, then we sack him and we get someone new and like we, you know, we hired a guy who clearly had the experience to do the job and he sucked and we sacked him and we waited too long but like, uh, for for people that are worried about the experience, it's only one game in but in terms of having a clear idea, clearly being able to communicate it, the one thing you have to acknowledge is whatever he did in the couple of training sessions he's had, the players understood it, implemented it and it worked. So like, the communication side of things which was such an issue with, with Emery, he certainly seems to have have been able to communicate his ideas and get them across to the players pretty effectively already. How, how much do you think it is fair to look at this game and start to allay concerns about lack of experience and, and the job being too big for him? Again, jumping to way too early conclusions, but where do you stand on, on sort of general Arteta takeaways from this game?
4: Uh, look, uh, again, I'd I'd recommend listening to the Arsenal player because he's calm. He knows what he wants to do is communicating clearly. You can hear what he's telling all the players. Uh, it all makes sense. To Tim's point earlier, he's played players in positions that let them play to their strengths, doesn't expose anybody uh, overtly to their weaknesses. At least he does what he can to provide them safety nets. And it just kind of makes sense. And regarding your point on the substitutions, what I liked about him not making the subs early was he was clearly trying to give the system time to work and to play, you know, as he made those changes, it changed changed dramatically how we played. Um, And he was obviously committed to how he started this game. Um, And so, but but those changes, just as Maitland-Niles shifted everybody around, And those changes changed how we played. And I did, not you know, Bournemouth kind of came back into it towards the end. So um, I generally enjoyed this game in in a way I haven't for some time. I've been obviously been a long time Arteta fan Um, and, you know, his presence on the sideline um he's not uh, he's pretty lively i mean he he is maybe of the pep mold rather than the arson mold where he, arson stays quiet he sits down etc you know he Arteta is there all the time but he he's not too noisy he's not too attention seeking it's more it's all making sure that each player knows what they're supposed to be doing and he doesn't he's not a constant drip of chatter all the time where they're tuning him out you can just hear him making simple adjustments to individual players calm in his voice uh yeah i loved it absolutely loved it and it made sense
1: and and i think gosh you know the the thing that i i can't help and i'm not going to lean into this i'm just going to make my (laughs) say my uh do me depressing thing really really quickly and move on but like it is hard for me thinking about how long we waited to get this done um in just Mm. in terms of if we'd done it before the international break and he had two weeks to work with the players and, you know, we were a little closer Amen, to touching brother. distance to the top four. I, I Look, it's it's water under the bridge. You can't fix it now. But And there's no, there's no telling what will happen. He may go on to be terrible and lose every single game the rest of the time at Arsenal. But certainly on the looks of things and the organization and the instructions that he was able to get across in just a couple of days, it, it does feel maybe just too little too late, which is a shame. But that's... That's a sad way to look at it if you're going to be optimistic, which I'm really trying to be because I'm, I'm thrilled about what what I saw in the first game. So let's look ahead real quick before we say goodbye, Tim. It's it's Chelsea and United the next two games. It's unfortunate, right? You'd like a manager to have yeah. a week between games when he first comes in and time to get his ideas across and not have to worry about rotating and being able to play the best players, not the most rested players, and have games where you can get a couple easy wins and get everybody on side, and he has none of that. He has to worry about rotation and minutes in their legs and, you know, two days of rest and big fixtures you have to win and lots of pressure and people jump into huge sweeping conclusions quickly. So it's not ideal. But having said that, that's what's ahead of him. What do you think will be his approach for these games? Do you think we will see individual plans for individual games and and a lot of change between these next two games? Or do you think it'll be sort of more of what we saw in this game?
2: I think it will be a little bit more of what we saw in this game. He spoke about quick wins. um, And I think, you know, to Paul's point about, um, for example, um, not, you know, making really early substitutions or anything like that, giving things time to bed in. um, I think he realises, you know, his first game's Boxing Day. I mean, he couldn't have come in at a much more kind of congested time of the season so I, I think there'll be little tweaks. I think there'll be little tweaks, but I think largely for the rest of the season, you'll see, you know, you you'll see not not exactly the same things, but I, th- I think he'll just try and work on getting them the basics. Um, and I'm I'm just uh, I'm I'm going to do something really wanky and self-referential, but read um, some quotes. You know, to reference uh, earlier the, the conversation I had with uh, Joe Montemoro because he walked into exactly the same situation pretty much. He took over in actually late November a team that had lost its way and he spent the first six months didn't make many changes now he makes like little adjustments in a game and uh, he. this is from an interview I did with him over the summer and he said to have a style of play that your players believe in you need insurance policies. If you want your players to believe in your style you have to give them something to to fall back on so they know that even if things don't quite go for them in a given situation they can still get something out of the game once they've got that base and that confidence you can start to make switches you can move between systems you can play with more width or more inside depending on what the game requires but we spent the first six months solidifying the core and after that we made adjustments and started to develop and from everything Arteta said so far I think that's what we're going to see so I think Um, There's probably still not enough, shall we say, material for Lampard and Solskjaer to really work with in terms of what they're going to expect from Arsenal. So maybe that's an advantage. They've only got 90 minutes of of footage of material um, of Arsenal because what we did was pretty much um, very brand new. The other slight advantage we've got, I suppose, is that Manchester City have played Chelsea and Manchester United recently um and arteta has been involved in creating a game plan for both of those games and actually city beat chelsea but lost to manchester united but actually neither in neither game were they particularly convincing so arteta's got some material to work with there because mm. he knows that process wise what he did or sorry what him and pep did in both those games wasn't great Um, So you could say that's a bad thing for us, but you could say it's a good thing for us because he has very recently looked at these teams. Um, He's prepared a game plan for them and now he's preparing another one. Them, He's had a very close look at them very recently, which hopefully should help him because they're going to have to be like little small interior changes. I, I don't think we can play exactly the same starting lineup for all three games, but, you know, we can we can do little things. I think we can probably, you know, I don't know, start Pepe and maybe drop Lacazette out for a game or something like that. Um, rotating that in that Lol, attacking area. <laughs> Come on. <man. laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But like just rotate a little bit in that attacking area where, um, you know, as, as uh, Paul and Clive have alluded to that the, we, we got the ball into those areas a lot. It's just the decision making um, and the quality wasn't quite there so i don't think there are any like um sacred players up there possibly i mean probably a bamiang but i I don't think we'd massively suffer if we like took nelson out and gave pepe a game um for example and and maybe if like socrates comes out again and chambers plays particularly because we gave Socrates that almost hybrid centre back right back kind of role you know where he was covering for Maitland Niles you've got to think that Chambers having played right back and centre back um, you know could play that role so maybe we can bring him in but I think the ideas will be pretty much the same um, maybe with one or two tactical tweaks depending you know obviously we know Manchester United for example are, are good on the counter um, but if we keep the shape we showed against Bournemouth um that that in itself is a good plan for for kind of quelling them on the counter, so i I don't think he'll change too much no,
1: yeah, I agree i one thing that i I like that he he clearly brought over from city by the way, is we did a bit of the tactical fouling when necessary. um it's one yep. thing that drove me nuts about Arsenal for so long is just not making the foul on the halfway line and winding up having a calamity in the defensive third and we we did some of that tactical fouling which leads me to just have a honorary mention for the referee who was shit i thought it was a poorly refereed game we don't talk referees a lot on this pod because it's not that interesting but i thought he did a bad job he did a bad job handling the time wasting and i thought that challenge on pepe is a red card personally i think these scissor challenges were supposed to be snuffed out of the game he has faced a few of those recently and it is a shame that There is still some of this, I guess, in the Premier League where a player comes in with flair and dribbling and skill and other players just want to take him out. And that's that's what's happening to Pepe. He's getting some really rough treatment and, and he needs to be protected. And I don't mean protected by enforcing rules that aren't rules. Just enforce the rules that are rules. And that's a scissor challenge. I, I think it's a red. And I it's, it's one where, once again, he's lucky to get up and walk it off. And who knows if there's any lingering damage from that. So, Clive, I'll finish with you. What do you hope to see in in these next two games, and specifically against Chelsea? They're scuffling right now. They've sort of hit, I think, some of the worst form of their season, and and they're maybe there for the taking a little bit. The attack is not flowing the way it was. They look a little bit more vulnerable defensively, which I think they've always been, candidly. So how would you like to see Arteta approach that game?
3: Well, Chelsea are an interesting side. I think they're also they're, they're young, so they go up and down. I think I, I did watch the Spurs game, and they were brilliant against Spurs. They took out Mourinho fantastically, playing the back three, three absolute monster sprinters back there. Mourinho wants to go long and go second ball for Ali and Son to you know pick up the pieces and go from there. He went long into a back three. They just swept it up. They were comfortable going one on one. Then Chelsea killed them in behind, you know, got the big wardrobes and sent them in centre mid, who've got no agility at all. And Mount and William just murdered them. Right. So if you get that Chelsea, we've got a problem. We've got a problem because they're they're fast, fresh and young. But their youth can sometimes take away their belief. And I think if we can get on the front foot, I think we can cause a problem. But Chelsea and Man United are both better away from home. So both games really worry me. Because I want them to work for the manager, I really do. I, I think if they do work, well we might actually break to it if we have two wins because you know it's gonna go it's gonna go crazy. Um if we get one win in a draw, I still think that'd be a great return from the two games. But I am worried about them because Manchester United are incredibly fast on the counter as well. And we're not. So we're gonna have to be really cute, we're gonna have to be really compressed, we're gonna have to be really brave. And we have to play in their areas where they are United in particular, not very strong, you know, in defence. So, David de Gea throwing them in, it needs to go our way. We've had a few draws, way too many that we could have turned into wins. We need something to go our way, and I think it'd be really good for everyone to have that feeling of a win against a top, you know, a top six team. And um, but I have to be honest with you, Elliot, I'm worried. I'm worried because. There's some quality players in these sides, and we have lost some quality. We lost some belief. I think it's returning, you know, structurally. But we're now going to start to look at the quality soon, mm. really soon, of the players, and I have a worry about that, if I'm honest.
1: Well, you know, the one thing I will say, I know they beat Spurs, lol, but, like, since beat, uh, losing to Manchester City, they lost it home to West Ham, away to Everton, home to Bournemouth. So, like, here we are saying, well, Bournemouth are shit. Well, Chelsea lost at home to Bournemouth. And after beating Tottenham, lost at home to Southampton. So, they're scuffling a bit. I think they're there to be had. I think they're a team you have to score first against. I know that's super intelligent analysis there. But because they will play a bit of a high line, they will push up, they will commit resources to the attack, and they can get hit in behind. I think if you get ahead of them and force them to come out even more... Then you can get a a scoreline kind of like what United did to them at the beginning of the season, didn't United roll them early in the season with that sort of plan? They just kept hitting 4-0, them. Four four 0 Yeah, four nil. Yeah, so 4-0. I, I think get ahead of them, and maybe you can have a really fun day. And what we saw finally, this is why I'm excited about it. We finally saw some through balls going in, Ozo dropping into space, provide laying them on for Lacazette, laying them on for Aubameyang. We have the the players to get in behind. We we now see that we can play those balls given the space, and if we can get them to to just be drawn out a little bit. Maybe uh, there'll be something there for us. I'm excited. I am really, really excited. A- a- the coolest part is we're talking football again. We're talking interesting tactical switches. We're talking about you know a plan that we see executed on the pitch that that makes us a better team. And the one thing I think we all agreed on is there's some weaknesses in the squad. We need a coach who can take the sum of the parts and make them better than what they are. Um and in the first game, I would argue that there was a little bit of that going on. That the way he deployed these players. Maitland-Niles, who's not naturally a fullback. Saka, who's not naturally a fullback. Shaka, who's looked weak in central midfield at times. Torreira, who's had too much ground to cover. He put them in positions where they could thrive, and they did. And, you know, it was just the poor finishing that maybe let us down. So we'll hopefully get that righted against Chelsea. Lots more to come. I'm, I'm depressed that the games are coming so thick and fast, because Clive, I would kill to do a rewatch of the first half against uh, Bournemouth. Maybe we can sneak one in tomorrow, you think? Possibly?
3: maybe maybe we'll,
1: we'll discuss that offline don't need to discuss that here in any event um we'll announce the winners of all the the giveaways on the next pod so between now and then still one chance to get in uh if you want to sign up for the athletic athletic.com forward slash arsenal vision um just tons and tons of good arsenal stuff to read right now and then clive's transfer pod will be coming to patreon next week as will scott's analytics pod so all that in any event uh paul's on twitter at Paws in my pants thanks Paws. Woohoo. tim's on twitter at thanks tim my pleasure as always clive's on twitter at clive pafc thanks clive Thank you very much. Warm up those vocal cords, my man. We'll be doing some singing in the next week. My name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Gunner. Give us five-star review. Write nasty things about Scott, uh, whose stuff I just plagiarized on this pod instead of actually having him on it. So that was a shortcut. In any event, exciting times, everybody. I'm I'm pumped. And if you're not totally sold on the Arteta era yet uh, after these next two wins, I'm sure you will be. So we love you, as always, and we will talk to you after Arsenal 10, Chelsea Nils.
5: MyPatriotSupply.com